I want to begin our time this morning by reading to you a short portion of a letter. It's a letter written by a 24-year-old young man to the father of a young woman that he had just met and that he would eventually marry. Part of the letter goes like this. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring, to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall redound to her Savior from heathens saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? Signed, Adoniram Judson, 1810. And just less than two years later, Adoniram and Anne would be married and depart for India. And then later would be, as you know, in Burma to serve Jesus. Now, Crossroads, when we hear this letter, our instinct may be with some sort of 21st century chronological snobbery to write it off as antiquated, something from times past, maybe even primitive. There is a first world insulation in our hearts that might deem a letter like this unnecessary, even maybe a little bit too dramatic for our taste. Fellas, maybe for you, you might think a letter like this is not only counterintuitive, but maybe unhinged, maybe even unnecessarily and overly righteous, to risk throwing away everything in a relationship like this. But I believe that underneath all of these initial reactions we may have, as Christians, there lies a basic question in all of us. What kind of a person does it take to write a letter like this one? What sort of driving passion has to be in your heart to reason about the world in this kind of way? What manner of conviction does it take to even think of life and marriage and death like this? It's a fair question. What lens did Adoniram Judson view life through that would compel him to think this way and to Click send, so to speak, on this letter and on that mission in his life. 
Perhaps as you think about stories like this one, if nothing else, you write it off as unique gifting in Adoniram Judson's life. One of the most well-known missionaries in all of church history. One of the foundation pieces in the modern missions movement. And so, if nothing else, there's a chasm between where you are and where Adoniram is, reasonable and normal, you and crazy, unhinged Adoniram. Because really, at least, if we're being honest, only some people are wired that way, right? And so we let ourselves off the hook for one reason or another, by reason of insanity or by reason of, well, that's just not me. But before we get off scot-free, I think an equally fair question is, what kind of a father says yes to this and gives his daughter's hand in marriage? Or what kind of daughter goes to agree and marry such a man? You see, this isn't just an Adoniram thing anymore. There is something going on here with everyone involved in this situation. And so how is it that God worked in these people's lives and in their hearts to be compelled to such a great work that was accomplished through the kingdom, uh, for the kingdom through them? Where does this sort of thinking start? What makes people believe and think and therefore live in this kind of way? What compels good and godly and, yes, reasonable people like David and Channing to pick up their life and move their little family and go serve Jesus on the other side of the world? What is the heart of someone who really actually understands God's global mission as it's found in Scripture, and then goes or faithfully stays and supports and sends on missions. I believe our text this morning answers this question in a fair and a simple way. So turn, if you would, to Romans chapter 15. Romans 15. In Romans 15, we see Paul's missionary heart spill out onto the page. And this morning, we get to catch a glimpse, just a small glimpse of a heart that is on God's kingdom mission. You see, Crossroads, it's not just that you do extreme things or that you even go on trips or that you work for an orphanage somewhere or that you start a training center. That means you have a missionary heart. What gives us the right perspective of missions is our own cultivating of a heart that is for God's kingdom plan. A heart that understands and beats for God's global gospel. That reflects a desire for Christ's name to be proclaimed among the nations. And then, and only then, as an outflow of that heart, we will start to invest our plans and our time and our resources and our lives into that mission. So this morning... Let's consider four elements of a missionary heart. 
four elements of a missionary heart that will drive us to participate in God's kingdom plan. We'll this morning look at verses 14 through 33, and it's a lot of ground to cover, so we'll read each section as we go. The first and foundational component, element of a missionary heart uh, is that we must understand our God-given role. A God-given role. Look at verses 14 to 19. Paul writes, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus then I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Here Paul is bringing his letter to the Romans to a close and As you know, he has written to really affirm and address the understanding of the gospel of this Roman church. That for Roman Jew and Gentile believers, the true gospel was for all peoples. That under Christ, they were one. We know Romans, in chapter 1, Paul talks about the righteousness of God, how uh, it is the righteousness of God revealed to mankind. And there's a phrase in the beginning of chapter 1 where Paul talks about the obedience of faith. And that is what we see here, that Gentiles are coming to the obedience of faith. Uh, We know Romans that chapter 3 tells us there is none righteous, not even one. And that chapter 5, though we are not righteous, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And chapter 8, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In chapters 9 through 11, we see God's gracious and sovereign plan of salvation, his plan of redemption, the all-wise God. And then in chapter 12 on, the right response of a life of worship to him. And so here we are in chapter 15, a section that we might otherwise read through very quickly because it just looks like Paul's travel itinerary. But we have so much to glean from this section. Now, interestingly enough, in this section, and actually not evident really until now in this whole letter, Paul has not met the Roman church. He has not met them in person, but he has heard of and he knew of their faith and of their testimony. So in these first few verses, that's why he is reaffirming his confidence in them and his affections for them. You see, he's saying, this isn't coming out of nowhere. I have the right, so to speak, to speak to this. That's why I've written boldly on some points. In verse 15, he assures these Roman believers that he's not out of line. He even highlights his role as an apostle, literally one sent out by God. 
This is Paul, persecutor and murderer of Christians, a Pharisee of Pharisees, a denier of Jesus as the Christ. And God miraculously saves him on that road to Damascus. This is Paul here writing, the great apostle saved and sent out by God. And here in verse 15, he's pointing out that it is a grace. He says, because of the grace given me by God. And this is the undeserved gift, the grace given to Paul. Verse 16, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Look in the ensuing verses how Paul describes his own role in God's kingdom order. Verse 16, in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Paul describes his own role as that of a Levitical priest, offering living sacrifices of worship to God. Uh, You see, the believing people of the Gentile nations are worship to God. They are souls sanctified and made as pure, and then sacrifices to God. Worship. This is an obvious reference to chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And Paul sees himself as a priest offering these sacrifices. You see, Paul understood his necessary participation in God's kingdom. He understood his role. Paul was not just saved to enjoy the grace of God for himself, in his own life, individualistically. He was so readily convinced that he was to go to the nations to proclaim the gospel. Crossroads, as Christians, we also have a calling because God has saved us and therefore commissioned us as well. So many of us, as we began this time, so many of us think uh, in this way. I'm just not Adoniram. I'm not Hudson Taylor. Uh, I'm not the all-star missionary. I'm just not that person. Right now it's the NBA playoffs, and I won't talk about this afternoon's game. I'm, I'm committed here. I'm fully here. I'm a, Warriors, I'm a Warriors fan. But we often think, well, I'm not LeBron. I'm not the Steph Curry of the team. That's the guy going. That's the family going on missions. Well, we'll roster spots 1 through 15 on God's kingdom mission are all necessary. You may not be a first century apostle. I hope you think you're not. Uh, You may not be an all-star missionary, although I believe in this room some of you should think about being a missionary. But we may not all have the same role on God's kingdom mission team, but we all have a calling. We all have a God-given role in his kingdom, and we ought to consider that. We may not be the first century apostle that Paul was, but we are indeed redeemed to proclaim his excellencies. Consider 1 Peter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that, or so that, you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
Or 2 Corinthians 5.20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. And here's our appeal. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Friends, the underlying assumption of the Christian faith throughout the whole New Testament is an implicit heart of wanting others to know Christ, to know the gospel, to know the good news that even though mankind, you and I, rebelled against a holy God, that in God's grace and in his mercy, he sent his son Christ to die for our sins, that we might be redeemed and restored to a right relationship with God. And so Christian, if you have been saved by grace, you therefore also by grace have a God-given role as a minister of his gospel. I think sometimes the way that we think and the way that we believe and the way that we therefore live rejects this God-ordained role that you and I have. We hold our God-given responsibility at arm's length because we are so consumed with things we'd far more readily consider our stewardship. But really is your achievement or your success or a position. I think Paul helps us with that. Look again at verses 17 to 19 and see the humility of Paul in this role, how he truly sees it as a gift of God that he cannot reject. Look at verse 17. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. You can stop there. Paul had seen results, success. And you read the entire New Testament from city to city. Paul left a gospel mark all over. Thousands came to Christ under his ministry. Even here, he says, he had brought the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. Gentiles he had ministered to professed Christ and their lives matched their profession. It was the obedience of faith. People had come to believe churches were established and gospel partnerships were made all because of the Apostle Paul. And yet Paul instinctually and insistently points to the empowerment behind his labors. He finds no reason for boasting in himself. Uh, That as the one who himself had been saved by the sovereign grace of God, to him this was a priestly service. You see, he wasn't doing the one saving. He was a humble mediator. He was a facilitator for God's redemptive work. Paul understood the truth that he wrote in chapter 9, that it wasn't because of works, but because of him who calls. That it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God. On God who has mercy. See, Paul saw the entirety of his gospel preaching ministry as due to the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul himself had been transformed from persecutor to to preacher and in the power of the gospel, demonstrated by signs and wonders. The gospel message at this time was being established and confirmed through him and he was a servant to that. 
friends, now we have that confirmed and established gospel message. And we have the empowerment of that same Holy Spirit, the same gospel through which Christ will accomplish much, the same mercy and grace of God. And you and I must understand our God-given role. We must understand also, though, the God-empowered nature of that role. Like Paul, we must understand God has given us by his grace to be gospel ministers. Like Paul in verse 17, we ought to say, in Christ Jesus then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. To him be the glory. So Christian, consider the grace of your God-given role as a minister of the gospel and see that that is the foundation of a missionary heart. The second component, second element of a missionary heart is a global mentality, a global mentality. To Paul, to be a Christian was to have a desire for God to be glorified and glorified globally. And this desire Paul had completely controlled his mentality and therefore also his strategy. Look at verse 20. Paul says, and, this, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never understood will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. Paul aspired to be a pioneer for the gospel, to preach Christ where Christ had not yet been named to go to people who were lost, who did not know the name of Christ, who did not know the gospel, the power of God for salvation. And what does he say? Not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. Now, what does this mean? Well, we know that Paul is not against gospel ministry being done in tandem, in partnership. Flip over just a page or two, maybe in your Bibles, to 1 Corinthians 3, and we see this very clearly. Paul was about doing ministry together. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 5, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And then look at verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers. So in fact, as we see in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul was for working with people to propagate the gospel. So it's not what he means. He's not saying, I'm doing my own thing. What does he mean here then? Paul is expressing here, his understanding of the strategy of the spread of the gospel and the priority of unreached people. He saw three things in his mind. 
First, he saw what the Old Testament had to say about what was going to happen among the nations, what was going to happen with the spread of the gospel, what was going to happen with God's glory among the nations, that Gentiles, not just Jews, would someday worship God. We see this as Paul quotes Isaiah 52, 15, in verse 21. He says, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Early in chapter 15, he also quotes several other Old Testament passages in the same vein. Uh, Look at verse 9. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And then in verse 10, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, verse 12, and again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. Passage after passage of Paul's understanding of how God's glory would be among all the nations. These are but a few of the hundreds that Paul could have pointed to. Paul knew that God had made clear from the very beginning to Abraham, the father of Israel, that they were those through whom all the families of the earth would be blessed, and that God had made clear to Moses that his people were to be a kingdom of priests. Does that sound familiar? A kingdom of priests through whom the nations would worship God. And so the first thing Paul understood here was that God's name would be great among all the nations, and he understood that from the Scriptures. The second thing that Paul understood and saw in his mind was the vast number of people groups and nations and peoples in his day who did not yet worship God. You see, in the foundation age, the first century of the church, there were vast numbers of nations and people people groups who did not yet know the name of Christ. And so Paul understood that and saw that too. And the third thing he saw was how much gospel work had to be done. How many foundations had yet to be laid Uh, He says this here not because it's bad to build on another man's foundation, but because foundations needed to be built seemingly everywhere in his mind. You see, if God's global plan for the gospel were to come to fruition, so much had to be done. Paul had gotten a hold of God's plan for his own glory. Paul's heart and his mind and his life were fully defined and shaped by Scripture in this. You see, in Paul's mind, missions, as we call it today, consisted of a singular mission. And that was God's plan for his own glory among all the nations of the earth. Crossroads, if we too 
could catch a biblical vision for God's kingdom mission, we too would make it our mission. If we would just be willing to see what Scripture says about God's fame among the nations, it would become so deeply ingrained in our hearts, and we would become enraptured with the work of the kingdom, and nothing could stop us from participating in that. Paul says here that in verse 22, this is the reason he hasn't had a chance to visit the Romans yet. How crazy does that sound in a day and age where we make our travel plans around what food place to go to or what beach we want to lay on or where we want to take pictures or where we want to just enjoy some time off and amen and amen, take breaks and go on vacations. But I think this kind of travel plan oriented around God's kingdom mission should be a wake-up call really to most of us in the room, myself included. You see, Paul is saying here, instead of visiting you where there's already a church and you already know the gospel, in fact, this letter affirms your understanding of the gospel, Roman church, you don't need me to come to you I need to spend my time laying foundations where the name of Christ has not yet been named. And so for this reason, I, Paul, have been prevented by conviction of the Spirit from visiting you. That's the only reason why I haven't visited you. Paul's desire is indeed to visit them. But the gospel of God, is, uh, the gospel of God going to the nations supersedes that desire because there is so much work to do. Paul's priority all along has been that of gospel progress and visiting the Romans wasn't compatible with that until now. Now that there is no further place for him in these regions. And even then, he's going to Spain. And a visit to Rome will just kind of be a stop along the way. And even as he visits, he hopes to be helped along by the Roman church in his ministry to Spain. Here we see the priority through and through is God's kingdom and God's mission. The biblical vision that one day every tribe, every tongue, and every nation will worship our God. Oh, crossroads that we would love and know and treasure the God of the scriptures and be so convinced of what his word has to say about the advancement of his great name and then that we would participate in it, that we would operate in our lives based on the fact of this gospel spread, that we would get a hold of the truth here and allow it to drive our thinking, not just let it take a back seat. Oh, for a love of Scripture and a passion to see God's name be great among the nations. To have this kind of mentality and affections defined by biblical realities. The overwhelming emphasis in missions is simple. God's kingdom plan. And so as you consider your plans, whether it be the summer or for your life, Check your motive and align yourself with God's kingdom mission. 
To have a missionary heart is to be a Christian whose boundaries for gospel passion spill out beyond just your own little world. A passion that reaches the corners of the earth. A passion in which God himself is pleased to find his kingdom plan being accomplished in your life. The third element of a missionary heart is this gospel-centered partnerships. Gospel-centered partnerships. Look at verse 25. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. You see here Paul's missionary heart in making local church partnerships. Now, as we know in this letter, Paul wanted to reiterate that it was the same gospel, the same Savior, the same grace, the same salvation that was for both Jews and for Gentiles together as one. And that biblical vision, that concept was not yet clear at this time. And so Paul wrote to the Roman church even to crystallize and to present that idea, this truth of a singular gospel a unifying and peacemaking salvation. That's why Romans chapter 14 is so important to our understanding of the gospel. And that's why here in these verses, Paul is pointing to the significance of these churches in Macedonia and Achaia, who were Gentile churches, giving toward the needs of the church in Jerusalem, a Jewish church primarily. Now, this is the same offering, to be clear, that we looked at in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 a few months ago when we talked about generosity. And here Paul's emphasis is on the shared spiritual reality of all of these churches that is only natural then that they share in financial resources also, physical things. Because all of this, the spiritual realities and the things that we have that we can give to support other Christians and the work of God around the world. All of that is a work and all of that is a provision from God. From salvation to sustenance. It is all God's and so we ought to be ready to share because we share in spiritual realities. And so notice here first the significance of resources here. Financial needs met. Tangible partnership. We live in an era of Christianity where it is acceptable and right even in our minds to do everything and prioritize everything but directly supporting the work that is going on among the nations. Crossroads, to our shame, we bypass the work of missions for more 
immediate and more self-gratifying things, more comfortable things. We live in an era of unprecedented excess. We have one Bible with a goatskin cover and another Bible with wide margins to write in and another without chapter and verse markings because it's supposed to be easier to read. But we readily neglect the vision of God's global gospel contained within its pages. Crossroads, to be quite honest, we have little reason, even as students, even as young people, we have little reason to neglect supporting gospel work abroad when we live with such abundance and oftentimes excess. I would contend this morning that our hearts are closed, and that's why our wallets are closed. We are tight-fisted because our gaze is on this world. What a testimony it might be for you to talk to your parents about what's on your heart in regards to giving or in regards to supporting missionaries. What an act of worship it might be to skip a drink or a movie so that you can give to the work of God. Because indeed, you share in these spiritual blessings. If you have denied yourself, taken up your cross, and follow Jesus now, how much more ought we to be willing to continue to deny ourselves of even little things, to give and to see his name be proclaimed all over the world? Notice here the nature of this gospel partnership also is spiritual. There's a spiritual element, a camaraderie. This isn't just only shared resources as if that takes care of that and checks that box. There are here shared affections. There's partnership, that is koinonia, it's fellowship. And we can look at chapter 16 and see the network of gospel partnerships that Paul had with the Roman church and with others to to whom this letter would be passed. All faithful saints who labored and partnered and worked for gospel progress, fellow prisoners and servants and saints all faithful people with whom Paul had gospel partnerships. Flip over to Philippians 1. This is where UCLA has been this past year. Philippians shows us this kind of affection and actual partnership in the gospel. Look at Philippians. Just look at Chapter 1, verse 3, for example, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy. And why is that joy? What is that from? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul's joy and affection. Look at verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart for you all are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. 
And then in verses 12 to 18, we won't read all of it, but Paul there tells of people uh, he knows in ministry, even those who are talking smack about him as he sits in prison. And Paul says in pretense or in truth, if Christ is proclaimed, if the gospel is going forth, I rejoice. I have transcendent, overwhelming joy if Christ is being proclaimed, whether I am being maligned or I am being celebrated as the apostle that I am because I am a servant of the Most High God. I understand my role and that gives me a joy in partnership for the gospel. Integral to the missionary heart, Crossroads, is this kind of eye toward gospel partnership. Uh, this kind of deliberate connectedness and a desire to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. And so the missionary heart is a heart open toward how God might work in others. It's a heart open toward how God might use others maybe instead of you. It's a heart open toward how God might pair you up in ministry with others who right now aren't quite your style. It's a heart open to anything in regards to you if it means that Christ is proclaimed. Crossroads, this is a missionary heart. And very briefly, our last element, our last component of a missionary heart is a prayer-driven perspective a prayer-driven perspective. Turn back to Romans 15 and look at verse 30. Paul says this, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. We find here in our final section of the text that Paul faces some daunting tasks ahead in his, in his ministry. And there are disobedient people in Judea who have rejected the faith. Literally, the word there is unpersuadable people. It's a stubborn group of people and Many of these kinds of people Paul has encountered before. He can handle it. Paul was also concerned about the reception that this offering might receive or might not receive from the Jerusalem saints. Uh, Keep in mind and remember uh, that he was bringing a gift from the Macedonians and the Achaeans, Gentile believers primarily. And so he was concerned whether or not they would receive the gift at Jerusalem from Gentile believers because that would mean uh, something about gospel unity or maybe disunity as to whether or not the Jewish believers received the generous gift from the Gentile believers. These are issues that Paul, the great apostle, pastor extraordinaire, Paul could address these things practically, authoritatively, convincingly, probably. He could, with those in Judea from whom he says he needs rescuing, he could avoid them, 
He could rebuke them. He could pull the apostle card on them. Uh, With the gift he was bringing to Jerusalem, he could just take it and say, hey, take it or leave it. They're being generous. And he could just go on his way. But notice Paul's humility. His tenderness of heart. He pauses and he asks these Roman believers, and he says, pray for me. Pray for me. Partner with me by praying for me. That's what all missionaries say. You heard David and Channing say that. You, you'll hear other missionaries say that at Grace Global today. We hear missionaries all the time say, you could give, and yes, please give. I mean, they're too ashamed to ask that, but they'll say, give, sure, but please pray. And it's because it's a missionary heart, one that depends on God. You see, it's only by God's protection and provision that Paul will find refreshing rest in Rome. And it's only by that same God's protection and provision that you and I will participate in the work of missions. Friends, as we seek to cultivate a missionary heart, we must understand the primacy of prayer in it. John Piper says this, prayer puts God in the place of the all-sufficient benefactor and puts us in the place of the needy beneficiaries. So when the mission of the church moves forward by prayer, the supremacy of God is manifest and the needs of the Christian troops are met. That's what prayer does. And that's what brings the missionary heart all together and puts it in its proper place posture before a great God. There is a passage that describes a a moment in time that we look forward to, and perhaps it's a moment in time we should look forward to more. Just listen to Revelation chapter 7. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Crossroads, the work of missions goes on until that which is said in this passage is true. There are foundations to be built. There are churches to be established. There are unreached peoples to whom the gospel must be proclaimed for this to be true. And so we must be fully on board and fully on fire for this mission that is captured in the missionary heart. We must understand our God-given role, install in our minds a biblically and therefore globally focused mentality. We must seek and and establish gospel partnerships and have this prayer-driven perspective. Friends, whether you are in this situation, Paul being sent, or you are the Romans sending, praying, and supporting faithfully. The Christian heart is a missionary heart. And so Crossroads cultivates such a heart that desires to see God's name great among the nations.
Let's pray toward that end. Father, thank you for your word, for in it we find truth. And today we find, Lord, the truth that your name from the rising of the sun to the setting will be great among the nations. So help us, O God, in our prayers and in our Bible reading and in our understanding of who you are and what uh, the course of history is for. Help us to catch a biblical vision of your name great and proclaimed by every tribe and every tongue and every nation. So Father, until that day when you call us to yourself, help us to be faithful to that kingdom mission. It's in the name of the one who all men must be saved, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.